So as those of you who have been members of West just even in the last few months know, this has been a hard spring for our community. We've been navigating challenges and loss and anxiety and worry together. And through that time, one of the things that people have been asking me is if I would share my vision for how we move together now. If I would share my vision for what I imagine Wes might look like. So here is a confession. I hate that question. (laughs) It makes me so nervous. Can you imagine? (laughs) Here I am, and I'm worried folks will be taking notes, and in a few months they'll say, well, you said this, and you changed your mind. Well, of course I changed my mind. What are you talking about? The other thing that's hard about vision for me is that I take seriously in a community like ours that vision comes in large part from all of you. That, that the vision that I might share and invite you to join me on is a vision that I hear from you, a vision that I listen for. And so it's a little tempting, actually, to just kind of sit down. Like, I could sit right here in the bottom of the stage and invite all of you to talk to me. I hope that in our community sharing time that you'll really hear an invitation to add your voice to what I say today. But I do realize it would be slightly anticlimactic to come to platform and just have me sit down and say, well, go ahead. (laughs) So I actually want to start today not with my vision, but with Felix Adler's vision. Felix Adler was the founder of the ethical culture movement He founded it in 1876. And I want to start with what he saw, really not even with his vision, but with the problems that he saw around him. You know, sometimes when you're starting something new the way Adler was, you you start with the dream of what might be, and sometimes you start with what you see around you and the worries and concerns you have, and then build from there. So I invite you to take yourself back to 1876 to imagine yourself in that time in New York City in the midst of the Industrial Revolution as waves of immigrants were coming into the city and being kind of crammed into tenement buildings and then brought into um, Uh, factory job after factory job. You know, this was the time when there were lines of immigrants waiting for those jobs. And so if one person in the job didn't make it, it was just fine because there was a whole line of people waiting to come in next. It was also sort of the time of the Gilded Age. So as you're holding those tenements in your mind, Hold to the image of the Gilded Age. You know, you've seen the Age of Innocence, maybe, that movie or other movies from that time. Hold in your mind the opulence, the gold, the wealth. A time of incredible wealth and incredible poverty. A time of disparity. The workers coming in, these immigrants, were being used as cogs in a machine. And that's part of what Felix Adler saw as he looked around the New York City of his time. He saw what I might call the commodification of human lives. 
the use of people as simply a means toward an end rather than an end in and of themselves. At the same time, at that time in America, there was all kinds of rethinking about religious life, about what church meant and what Christianity meant and what Judaism meant. People were kind of experimenting and trying new things on for size, imagining what might work. And for the first time, they were beginning to imagine outside of some of the more traditional molds. So so Felix Adler saw that as well. It was out of that place looking at at the, the Industrial Revolution and all that it meant, this kind of commodification of the human spirit, and then simultaneously this real change in the religious landscape. It was out of that that Adler founded this new movement. A reaction to the twin observations that society was being kind of consumed by consumption and that traditional religion was no longer serving its people. Adler actually thought that religion was going to die out any day now. This was uh, May 15th, 1876. So, And this movement was created as a way to address those two concerns in his mind, in Adler's mind as he looked out at the world. So here we are. Adler was not exactly right about religion dying out any day now. But he was right about religion changing dramatically from his time. And maybe he just had the wrong timeline. We don't know yet. Human history hasn't finished being written. And I imagine that he probably couldn't even have conceived of how the Industrial Revolution continued, becoming the digital revolution in our time. How despite the incredible work that Adler and other ethical culture leaders and many others in the country did around fair labor practices and labor laws, particularly bringing some of the first child labor laws to America, all of the work they did around fair wages, I imagine they might not have been able to conceive of the way that now that income inequality persists is perhaps even more striking. And so too does the commodification of people, the use of people as a means to an end, the selling of people, sometimes literally, here in the States and also on a global scale. The way that our global economy is intertwined now the way that we know so much more and are able to be more connected, but also so much more aware of how every choice we make, we make affects people all the way across the globe. So here we are, 140 years later almost, and here I am. And what I have to tell you this morning, I think, is that if we are to live up to the name of that movement ethical culture, that we need to take up the charge that our founder left us and to take it up as though our lives depended on it, because they do. I, um, I went to tea the other day 
with Ed Erickson and his partner, Carol McIntyre. Some of you remember Ed. Ed was the second leader here at the Washington Ethical Society. He served during the Civil Rights Movement and the Poor People's Campaign and the Vietnam War in particular. And you can really hardly think about about Ed's service at West without thinking about those huge things that were going on in the country because they were so much a part of who he was and who the community was during his time. It was a great conversation, and I always leave. I see Ed every couple of years. He lives in Florida most of the time now, um, but every once in a while I get to see him, and I always leave the conversations feeling really inspired about sort of the things, you know, his stories about leading Wes out into the streets and testifying before Congress. Ed was responsible for, um, along with other people, of course, but um, but was responsible in part for... Um, Conscientious objector status being extended beyond uh, religious conviction to ethical conviction, that that was a, a legitimate way to become a conscientious objector. So, um, so I, I just leave really full of these stories of Ed and this community and his life in this community. Of course, then he went up to serve the New York Ethical Society and was president of the American Ethical Union for a time. And so at the end of this uh, couple of hour time that I had with Ed and Carol, I, I just thanked them, you know, and I said how inspiring I always found it to be with them, how, um, how I feel when I talk to them so deeply, the call to lead Wes in the path of action, of an active and acting ethical culture, an ethical culture that we're creating as we march and as we rally, you know, that, that they... Um, that they give me that strong sense of history, of what this place has always been. And then Carol corrected me. Carol, Ed's partner, her, her parents were L.D. and Alice McIntyre, among the very first founders of WES. And Carol was in, I think, the very first Sunday school class at WES. So she knows what she's talking about. And, uh, and so I was talking about, you know, being inspired to action through everything they were saying and how appreciative I was that they shared these stories with me. And Carol said, well, you know, no, I don't really think it is about action, actually. <laughs> kind of sounded a lot like action to me, all that marching. And she said, I have always thought about it as living ethical culture. It was just so great the way she said it, so simple and clear. I have always thought about it as living ethical culture because it's your whole life, you know? It's your whole way of being in the world. So that, thanks to Carol McIntyre, (laughs) that I think might be my vision. Simple. Just that each one of us learns what it means to fully be ethical culture in the world. And that in so doing, we fulfill Felix Adler's dream for the movement. Because here is the thing. What Adler saw, the need and the worry and the failings out of which he created this movement 140 years ago, they are still with us today. Not only are they still with us, but they are in some ways in even higher relief. I don't mean to say that things have not moved forward since 1876. I would not be able to stand here before you, in fact, and say that. (laughs) 
And we've had huge steps forward, right? Many of you have, have contributed to and participated in those steps forward and continue to do so. We've had the Civil Rights Movement and the Women's Movement, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the LGBTQ rights movement, huge movements forward as our society, things to celebrate, celebrate and be proud of and honor. And when I think about those things, they do, they give me a sense of the sort of forward march of human rights the way we are able to draw bigger and bigger the circle of who is us, the people that are considered us in this country, not somehow outside. So I see all of that movement forward. And. And I look out and see still the economic disparity that exists in America, wider and wider every year, it seems. The, the disappearance, in some ways, of the middle class, how much harder, this is the first generation, I think they say, that really can't do as well as the generation before them. I see that in this community with our young adults as they kind of struggle to find their way after education and graduate school, as they struggle to find their way in this economy. We see it in the middle class, but we see it too with the neediest in America. The way the safety net is pulled out or threatened to be pulled out again and again. The way some of those cuts are the first to be made. I had a great conversation this weekend with a, an old friend who works in the mental health field, and she was talking about how always mental health is the first part of the medical system that's cut in America. And she says, you know, it's like taking a cut out of the smallest piece of the pie anyway. It was already the smallest piece of the pie, and now we just make it smaller and then we wonder why there seems to be a kind of crisis around mental health in our country. So I think about, about those at the, at, the end, at, the, at the end of the poverty scale. I think about the folks at D.C. General, Elise mentioned the rally coming up on Tuesday. You may, um, you may be familiar with the name D.C. General because it's, it's the biggest shelter in D.C. by far. It's the one where most of the homeless families go in D.C. And um, that's the shelter where Relisha Rudd was, uh, was living when she went home with one of the staff members there and was lost and has yet to be found. And so out of that experience, people have been, have remembered, I guess, <laughs> that there are hundreds of homeless families in D.C., and that that's where they live. And, um, and so they've been working on, on organizing, and some of the residents have been organizing themselves, trying to agitate for better conditions, for, for safer structures around staff, which is one of the real concerns in that particular situation. Um, at one of their organizing meetings, the residents came together to, uh, to meet and, and talk and plan, and um, uh, according to the residents, the staff called the police, who came and told them that they couldn't um, organize without a, they couldn't meet without a protest permit. Yeah. That's the First Amendment, actually, right there. 
And so the Washington Interfaith Network and folks from this congregation have gone out and, um, and stood with them, basically. <laughs> stood with them and said, you know, we dare you to call the police now while we stand here. And these folks meet and organize. So there's this rally coming up on June 3rd. I think about those families at D.C. General when I look out and imagine what the world looks like today. I think about the prison industrial complex and the school-to-prisons pipeline, the way more and more of our children in this country end up with their behavior criminalized and sent off, shuttled off into a criminal justice system that is deeply racist, a criminal justice system that houses you know, more folks than, than almost any other country here. And then what happens when they come back and can't receive, you know, federal benefits, can't live places, can't work places, because who wants to hire someone with a, with a felony checked off right there? I think about that. And then I think, too, just I think about sort of the commercialization of America, You see that in politics, of course, the American Ethical Union Assembly looked at money in politics and um, and how deeply um, how deeply that scars and traumatizes the political system in America. The way the political system really, you know, the idea of kind of representative uh, representative democracy in America has gone the way of corporate personhood. And I think, too, just about families in America. I think about middle-class families in America, you know, who aren't sure quite where to find meaning, who wonder maybe if it's at Costco, you know, if you can pick it up in the bulk aisle. Perhaps you can imagine the world I'm describing now, and maybe... If you close your eyes, you can imagine the world as it could look if we were able to make movement on these issues. If we were able to fulfill our mission in the world in a deep and meaningful way, even just in this little neighborhood, even just in Ward 4, or just in the city, in the district. I think about standing there with the residents at D.C. General, I think about West folks working with our partners at Family and Friends of Incarcerated People, working with them to move forward, ban the box legislation, so that when you get an employment application, the very front page doesn't say, check here if you have a felony, which might as well be, check here if you'd like your resume to go into the shredder pile. I think about the work that we have to do, the work that we can do, work that calls to us, with our partners in the Washington Interfaith Network, work here in D.C. and then also across the country, environmental work to change laws all across America, work with our community partners in El Rodeo, El Salvador. I think about the world that we might be able to create, little by little, It's so hard, I think, because you look out and the world seems to have an awful lot of problems, I've noticed. It can be hard to imagine where to begin. 
And so it helps me sometimes to just close my eyes and think of the one thing I might be able to do, the one life I might be able to transform, the one relationship I might be able to build with someone completely different than myself, and what that relationship would do for me. All of these things, these challenges out in the world, and then the possibility of what could be, the possibility of what could be if if marijuana were decriminalized across the country, and we weren't sending folks to jail for that anymore, at least, or or the possibility of what could happen if restorative justice circles were used throughout the country in juvenile justice systems, right? Restorative justice circles are about bringing people and communities back together and repairing the community instead of punishing the child. I think about how communities could be transformed. And I think this is the perfect call for humanists that this is a call to human transformation because it's a call about valuing people. It's a call about saying that the folks in D.C. General are as important as I am, who is as important as the person in El Rodeo, who is as, as, as important as the person who's in prison right now in solitary confinement, that each of those people is just as important And that if we can find a way to connect each to the other, we can truly change. I mean, I believe it. We can truly change the world around us. So I think, too, I think about the the need in the world, which Adler saw and which we see now, and I think, too, about the kind of religious climate in the world. So Adler, you know, wasn't exactly right that religion would die out shortly after May 15, 1876. It does seem to be around. But I wonder what he would think about this moment in American history right now. You know, more and more humanists are coming out all around the country in different campaigns and in different ways. People are coming out as atheist or as humanist or as agnostic. Folks are saying, you know, the religion I was brought up with just doesn't work for me. More and more folks are able to make that step. But, and this is the more exciting thing, I think, for us, even more of them are beginning to realize that that step, this one, oh, I think I'm a humanist, not this other thing over here, that this step isn't far enough, that they need to make the next step into community with people around them. There are all kinds of different kind of experimental humanist communities popping up here and there. I hear about a new one all the time, every week. There's the humanist community at Harvard, the the humanist hub, it's called. There's um, Sunday Assembly, the, um, the Atheist Church out of London, which is coming to other cities around the country as well, and which has as its motto something like, um, live well, help often, do more. Sounds good to me. So it's this moment, right, where, where humanist communities are popping up because people are realizing, they're realizing that not only does the traditional religion that they may have grown up with, or perhaps... The, the, secular, the secular life that they grew up with 
doesn't work for them anymore, and that what they need is a community to support their new life. The truth is, though, that we didn't need those humanist communities popping up to tell us that that was important. In fact, I know sometimes it's hard for those of us who have been in communities like this for many years not to send little, like, nasty grams to those communities saying, Hello, I've been here. How are you? 44 years counting, 70 years and counting, 140 years and counting. We know how important it is to have a community like this. I think about all of the people who come in and say, I didn't know there was something like this. I didn't think there would be something for me. I hear that from new members, from folks who walk through our doors for the first time, and I hear it from those of you who have been around 15, 20, 25 years, that when you came 25 years ago, that's the first thing that you thought. I didn't think that there would be something for me. I didn't think I would be able to find this. And look, here it is. So my vision, maybe, for Wes is that it is an alternative in the truest and deepest sense of that word. I think that that's what Felix Adler was starting back in 1876. You know, it's one reason when I'm talking to newcomers about some of our funny language and our words and, you know, they're not sure. They After after platform, they'll say, I really liked your sermon talk, reflection speech. Uh, What you said was nice. Thank you. (laughs) And so as I'm trying to get people, you know, to kind of orient them to our language, I think about the fact that the reason we have that language, which, you know, is sometimes a little frustrating, and, you know, occasionally we need to add some words so that people know what we're talking about when they look at our website, but, you know, the reason we have that language is that Felix Adler was starting something new. And so he created new words to go with that new thing. He was starting an alternative. I think about Wes as an alternative to traditional religion, but also as an alternative to total secularism, an alternative to the New York Times on Sunday morning. That's our real competition, right? (laughs) The New York Times and maybe like yoga on Tuesday night. Now, don't stop doing yoga. It's very good for you. And it's great to read the New York Times, but you can do it Sunday afternoon. That's when I read it. So it's an alternative to traditional religion. It's an alternative to secularism. And I would say that it is, in the deepest and truest sense, it's an alternative to the structures of the world that don't work for humanity. It's an alternative to the racist structures and the homophobic and transphobic and and heteronormative structures. It's, It's an alternative to all of the things that divide humanity from each other rather than reminding us that we are the same. Ethical culture provides that alternative. I started off by by talking about, by acknowledging what a hard spring it has been. And it's going to be hard for a little while. It's, it's important for a community like ours to work through challenges together and to work through them well. 
to, to honor them, to pause and reflect. And I'm glad that we've been doing some of that work and that we'll keep doing it. And, and, if that's the entirety of who we are, we're doing a disservice, I think, to the families and the individuals that are waiting to walk through our door and say, I didn't know, I didn't know that I could find this. I didn't know that there would be a place like this for me. For us to live up to the potential of our mission in the world, the potential behind our statement of purpose and the potential in Felix Adler's vision, to our potential as an alternative, an alternative community. We have to find a way together to honor and remember and pause and reconnect even while we are living out that potential in the world, even while we are opening our doors and saying, come in. We are so glad you found us because we too didn't think there could be a community for us. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with a member of West. Uh, and, and we were talking about how things had been hard, and, and she said how sad she was. And then she said, but you know, what I think we have to remember is that whatever we want Wes to become, it's up to us. Wes is what we make it. So they see. It was right. I was right at the beginning that my vision really comes from listening to you. It was one of the best things that I've heard in the last few months. That Wes is what we make it. I am looking forward to making it an incredible alternative with all of you.